In February of 2010, in Philadelphia, FBI agents and local police raided an abortion clinic owned by Kermit Gosnell. When they raided this clinic, they described the conditions they found as worse than a bad gas station. There was blood and urine everywhere, including cat feces. The women waiting to get abortions were sedated but not being cared for. The instruments were rusty and dirty and being used for multiple purposes that they weren't meant for. And in the middle of this scene of horror, they found the bodies of over 47 babies. The babies were stored in jars, milk jugs, orange juice containers, cat food containers. Some were just thrown on the floor. At least three of the babies had been killed after birth by snipping their spine. They raided this facility not because they were murdering babies, but because they were distributing prescription drugs illegally. And what they found was unimaginable horror. This horror had been going on for an indeterminate amount of time. Yet we do know that this clinic was open for 38 years. And for 38 years, Kermit Gosnell made ten to $15,000 a day giving these kind of abortions, murdering these babies. When we think about something like that, we're left with questions. Why on earth would God allow this? Why would God allow it to go on for so long? Why would God hide himself in the day of trouble? Why would God allow the wicked to prosper while he waits and lurks to murder the innocent? The response to this raid was that Kermit Gosnell was charged with murder and is serving life in prison, rightly. But the main problem wasn't that he killed babies. The main problem was that he did it inappropriately. And so the murder of innocent babies continues. Why has God not ended abortion? Why has God not put an end? Why does he stand far off as the innocent are killed? In other words, why does God seem to ignore injustice in the world? That's the question that prompts our wrestling today out of Psalm 10. We could look at other instances of injustice. Why did God allow millions of Jews to be murdered in the Holocaust? Why did God allow atrocities like what happened in the Rwandan genocide? Why does God allow race-based violence like the genocide of the Uyghur people? Or the many incidences of race-based violence that we have in our own history in this country? Why does God seem to ignore injustice? 
That's the question that we're actually not going to answer today. That is a question of theodicity. A question of how do we defend a God who says he's good and all-powerful and yet evil happens. And God allows it. I imagine many of you could probably make an argument for why God is still good even though he allowed the abortion clinic of Kermit Gosnell to operate for 38 years. I can make that argument too. And that's an important argument to make and an important discussion to have. But that's not the discussion I want to have today. Because even though, even though I believe that and can argue theologically that God is still good, my heart still burns with these questions. Why, God, do you allow it? Why does injustice exist and you seem to do nothing? That's the question that I want to deal with today. And the way I want to deal with it from Psalm 10 is how do you help your heart in the midst of that? Even if you know what is true and you're well acquainted with the scriptures, how do you work the work of faith in your heart? What do we do when the pain of injustice is so strong and God seems to do nothing? The answer from Psalm 10 is that where God seems to ignore injustice, we must remember that he sees and will judge. Where God seems to ignore injustice and do nothing, we must remember that he sees and will judge. That's the main point of Psalm 10. The question, though, is how do we get there? In other words, it's one thing to say we need to remember that God sees and will judge. But how do we get our hearts to trust in that? How do we get our hearts to put faith in that reality? The problem that we experience is there's a gap between the reality of the pain brought about by injustice in our world. Either injustice that we see and it breaks our heart or injustice done to us. And it's a real and present pain to us because we're experiencing. We are the helpless. We are the afflicted. There's a gap between that pain and the promise that God sees and will judge. How do we get to that point where we remember and hope that God sees and will judge? That's what lament, friends, is for. That's why we're talking about lament this season. Because remember, lament is meant to bridge that gap between pain and promise. We defined lament last week. Lament as, is a prayer in pain that leads to trust in the promises of God. It bridges that gap between the pain of present injustice and the promise of future judgment. It helps us move our hearts into trusting, even though we see unspeakable horrors before us. So we're going to look at Psalm 10 and see how in the midst of injustice, in the midst of the murder of the innocent and the prosperity of the wicked, God's servant can be moved to hope in that future judgment, can be moved to remember that the Lord sees and will judge. We're going to look at Psalm 10 and it's going to follow the same pattern we laid out last week of lament. What, uh, I think Thad mentioned as we were talking about in the elder meeting as T-cat. It's a good way to remember it. I like it. Turn, right? Turn, complain, ask, and trust. 
We're going to divide this psalm that way. The psalm itself is divided that way because this is the pattern of lament for God's people. And so we're going to look at these individually, but we're going to focus particularly on complaint today. So with that in mind, look at Psalm 10 verse 1 with me. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We know from the, from the description that follows that this psalmist is experiencing, either personally or in his circle, intense injustice. He's experiencing this pain, and yet he doesn't turn away from God. He's, even though God seems silent, he turns towards him. That's what we talked about last week from Psalm 13, right? The first thing we need to do in lament is turn toward God. When seasons of sorrow come, we must turn towards our God, we said from Psalm 13 last week. And we talked about how that turning to God is an act of faith, not an act of disbelief. Lament is not unbelief. Lament is faith. Turning to God is an act of of faith, especially when he seems silent and hidden. We turn to him and we bring our pain and our prayer and our praise like we talked about last week. And we do that because we believe that God is good. Because we believe that God is near and listening. Because we believe that God answers his people when they cry out to him. Because we believe that God has promised good for his people. All of those things ground us turning to God. And the psalmist here, which I think is David, turns to God. He says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? He turns to God, and then what does he do? He pours out his complaints. He pours out his complaints. We see his complaints laid out in verses 2 through 11. David brings his complaint before the Lord... But before we talk about what that complaint is, we need to answer an important question that Charlie brought up as we were talking about this text. He said, why do we know, how do we know this is a complaint? Doesn't use the word complaint. And I think he's right to ask that question. Why call this a complaint? Why say the psalmist is complaining to God here? I think if you take what he says about the wicked in verses 2 to 11, which is basically this, the wicked are arrogantly abusing the helpless. He says that, and he starts out before he describes that by asking this question, why, Lord, do you stand far away? In other words, why, God, are you not doing anything about it? He is, the questions cast this whole section in light of a complaint. God, you are, these things are happening, and you're not doing anything about it. See how that works? This description of all of this wickedness is started by that question, and that question says, God, you ought to be doing something about it, but you aren't. Why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself instead of acting? This is a complaint, but the question should arise in our mind. Isn't complaining bad? Children, don't use this as a justification to tell your parents that complaining is in the Bible and it ought to be okay. Complaining like this is different from what we might call grumbling. And I think it's important for us to recognize the difference. You see, God's people, in the history of God's people, rather, all throughout the wilderness wanderings, God's people were characterized by grumbling. In the wilderness, Israel grumbled. 
We see that clearly, particularly in Exodus 16 and 17, in Numbers 11 and 14. I want to give you an example of that. Listen to Numbers 14. Numbers 14, verses 1 through 4. Listen to what the people of God do. This is right after, right after the spies have gone through the land of Canaan and said, it's a good land, but there's gigantic people in there, and they have big cities, and it's scary. And here's what God's people say. Verse, four, uh, verse 1 of chapter 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. You might have noticed in there, they're they're grumbling to Moses and Aaron, but God says a little bit later as he's talking about this incident in Numbers 14, 27, that they're actually grumbling against him. Uh, Verse 26, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, how long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. God's people in light of suffering, we're grumbling against the Lord, which is very different from the kind of complaint that arises in a psalm of lament. Listen to another example of godly complaining in Psalm 102. Listen to the difference. Psalm 102, the superscript says, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the days my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. That's a godly complaint right there. That's a complaint of the kind that we find In these psalms of lament. Notice the difference between that and the grumbling God's people did in Israel. Or in the wilderness, excuse me. If we compare those two, as we think about them, we see a couple differences that emerge. The first one that sticks out to me is that grumbling, grumbling turns away from God. Notice what Israel did. They grumbled at Moses and Aaron. They were grumbling at God, but they weren't turning towards him and bringing that complaint. They were turning away from him to others and complaining about him. They were grumbling, I should say. It's not complaining. They were grumbling about him. Grumbling turns away from God, but complaining turns toward God. In both Psalm 102 and Psalm 10, this psalmist is bringing his complaint to the Lord. 
right? Doing that very first step of lament that we talked about, turning in faith towards God. Grumbling slanders God's character. Israel was accusing God of intentionally bringing them into this promised land so that he might kill them. Even though this promised land was a result of his promises, right? They were saying false things about God, accusing him of wickedness and evil. Grumbling slanders God's character, but complaining upholds the holiness of God. Complaining doesn't accuse God of wrongdoing. Notice all through Psalm 10, as this is laid out, it's the wicked that is evil. And what the psalmist is saying is, God, why aren't you doing anything about it? Not accusing him himself of being the author of that evil. Grumbling says in pride, I deserve better. Complaining says in pain, I need help. Notice the difference. Israel, as they grumbled, said, man, we had it good back in Egypt. We had to go back there. We deserve better than what God has brought us into this land flowing with milk and honey. Meanwhile, the psalmist says, Lord, this is reality. Help me. Grumbling is from pride and complaining is from pain. Grumbling says, I believe, Lord, so give me what I want. I believe, so give me what I want. Whereas complaining says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Because in the midst of this trial, it does not seem like you are good, like I know you to be. Ultimately, grumbling itself is an act of unbelief. Grumbling itself is an act of unbelief, which is the key separator, because complaining is an act of faith in the character and promises of God. Let me say that again. Complaining, godly complaining, biblical complaining, the kind of complaining we're doing in lament, complaining is an act of faith in the promises and the character of God. Look at how that works in Psalm 10. The psalmist's complaint here, David's complaint, is rooted in the character and promises of God. Think about the first section. This complaint is actually divided into two pieces. So we've got verse, we've got verse 2, which is kind of an overall summary. And then we've got verses 3 to 6. The reason we can divide it into those pieces is because notice in verse 6, he says in his heart, and verse 11, he says in his heart. There's two things that the wicked person is saying in his heart and they're a result of these circumstances and the psalmist is complaining about that. It's verses three to six. What we see there, if we look through, the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. In other words, he has no concept that God's judgments are going to get him. God is out of the picture. All his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. In other words, What the psalmist is complaining about is that there is a wicked person or persons and they hate God. They have no, they have no fear of God. They see no need for God. God is out of the picture in their mind. 
He captures this in verse 2 when he says, In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Notice all the pride language in verses 3 to 6. The wicked is proud because he hates God and wants nothing to do with him. And, verse 6, when he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Not only does he hate God, but he thinks it doesn't matter. He thinks that it's no big deal that he hates God. Notice in the second half of this complaint, verses 7 through 11, the psalmist now turns to this wicked person's actions towards his neighbor. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. And he says in his heart, God is forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Notice God is relatively absent in 7 through 11, except for what the wicked says in his heart. All of that is tied towards neighbor. The wicked, in other words, hates God, and he hates his neighbor. And he thinks that God won't do anything about it. When he says God is forgotten, he has hidden his face. He will never see it. Here in these passages, we see the true heart of injustice. That hatred for God leads to hatred for neighbor. That lacking any kind of fear of God leads to abuse of neighbor. The psalmist is complaining that the wicked hate God and hate neighbor. But why is this a big deal to the psalmist? Why complain about this? Why is this a problem? If we just think back a little bit in God's word, think about Psalm 1. Psalm 1 lays out these two paths, the path of the blessed and the path of the the, the wicked, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. The one who is blessed and the one who is destroyed, right? The one who forsakes the ways of sinners will be like a tree planted by streams of water that flourishes and bears fruit. And what will happen to the wicked? They'll be like chaff who are blown away in the wind. But that's not happening here. The psalmist says, hey God, Uh, the wicked are prospering. They're not being destroyed. The godly are being destroyed. What's up with that? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away and let that happen? Not only that, but if we look back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 7 says that God destroys those who hate him. And so the psalmist is saying, wait a minute, God. This wicked person hates you. Everything they do shows that they hate you. They are doing the exact opposite of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why are they not destroyed? They ought to be. You see how that's grounded in the character and promises of God? Deuteronomy 10 says that God loves and cares for the helpless. God constantly exhorts his people. To show the same kind of care for the poor and afflicted that he showed for Israel when they were sojourners in Egypt. And yet here, it doesn't seem to matter whether you do that or not. God hides his face and doesn't do anything about it. So the psalmist, David, says, God, why do you not immediately destroy 
these wicked? Why do you not immediately rescue these helpless? Why, God, have you not acted? Why have you let this go on for so long? This is his complaint, and it's rooted in the character and promises of God. What does this do in the psalmist? Why complain this way? Why does God's word have this pattern for us to turn to him and to bring complaints like these, rooted in faith, in the promises and character of God. We see, first of all, that complaining this way expresses faith in the midst of pain and sorrow. In other words, there is no reason to complain about these things unless God is actually not like that, right? Unless God hates the wicked who hate him, and unless God longs to rescue the helpless, There is no reason to complain about it because this is just the way things are. But if these are not just the way things are, if there's some kind of disconnect here between what God has shown us about what he's like and what reality is is happening in in our world, then there's reason to complain. So it actually expresses faith that God is not like this and there's something amiss in the world. J. Todd Billings in his book, Rejoicing in Lament, which is another helpful resource on lament, puts it this way. He says, writers of laments and complaints in the Psalms often seek to make their case against God, frequently citing God's promises in order to complain that God seems to be forgetting his promises. They throw the promises of God back at him. I think that's a helpful way to put it. They throw the promises of God back at him, not in a disrespectful manner, but in a way that says, wait a minute, God, you've said this is the way that the world works. And it's not working that way. What, what's the deal? Why? What's going on? It expresses faith that God has indeed created an orderly and good world. And that this, this disorder, this injustice, this sorrow and suffering is not the way it was meant to be. It doesn't just express faith though. Complaining also puts things in perspective. Complaining is a blunt conversation with God that helps us to see our circumstances in our heart more clearly and to reorient our heart towards God's word and God's work. It's an honest and blunt conversation with God about these things that helps us to see these things more clearly and to see our own heart in the midst of these things and to reorient towards God and his work. Here's, here's how that works in Psalm 10. Notice in Psalm 10, as the psalmist complains, the heart of the matter is exposed, right? He even uses the language of heart. We already saw it, verse 6 and verse 11, right? The heart of the matter is exposed. The heart of the wicked says, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. And the heart of the wicked says, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. In other words, the source and root of all of the injustice and oppression that is happening is a heart that does not fear God. That's the true problem. If we back up for a minute and think about our world today and we think about the war in Ukraine, if we think about that, the true problem is in the heart of guys like Vladimir Putin that don't fear God that think, I shall not be moved. I can do this with impunity. I will not be moved, never, 
Never will adversity come to me. And God has forgotten and has hidden his face. And therefore, I can do whatever I want. And I can use my own people and my resources and the people of Ukraine however I want. I can do whatever kind of hateful things to my neighbor I feel like because there is no God to fear. That's at the root of everything. And when we complain, it exposes the true root. It's not just that these unjust acts are happening. But they're happening for a reason, because there's hearts that don't fear God. This exposes the real problem and puts things in perspective. But as that is exposed, it also exposes our own hearts. It exposes our own hearts. See, we're often tempted to respond to circumstances like this in ways that are wicked. We're tempted to respond with vengeful anger when we see the innocent murdered. But the Lord says, vengeance is mine. We're tempted to respond with crippling despair that says, this is, the, this is just the way things are and all life is suffering. But God calls us to have faith in a future hope. Sometimes we're tempted to just cold indifference. Yeah, I know suffering's in the world. I can't do anything about it, so I think about it. That's where I'm tempted most, is towards just an indifference to suffering. One of the ways that lament and complaints in lament can serve us in this is to expose even the coldness in our hearts to injustice in the world and call us to care more because God does. To remind us of the truth that God does indeed care. This exposes in our hearts sometimes a grumbling unbelief. In other words, you might be tempted if you were in David's shoes here or if you've been in David's shoes before You might be tempted to say, you know what? That person does whatever they want with no fear of God and they use their neighbors for their own pleasure and God does nothing about it. Why would I bother to fear the Lord and love and serve my neighbors? Right? That's the the response of grumbling unbelief. It works for them and God doesn't care. Why would he hold me accountable? Or sometimes... The response of grumbling unbelief that's exposed in our heart could be, you know what? God's not doing anything about this and he oughta, and therefore he's a monster. That's the response that's given often by the world. If God is able to help and doesn't and allows something like millions of babies to be murdered, then God is clearly a monster. Those responses come from unbelief. But when we lay out our complaints, the wicked thoughts of our heart are exposed. The benefit, though, of lament is that it helps us take these wicked thoughts and turn them into why questions, right? The psalmist, David doesn't say wickedly, God, you don't care. He's asking, why is the Lord standing far away? Why is the Lord hiding his face? He knows that it's not because God does not care. He knows that it's not because God is indifferent, but he's asking why, and he's trying to be helped by the Lord to move to faith. So complaining puts things in perspective and exposes our heart and expresses faith in the midst of pain and sorrow. As complaint brings clarity, it helps us see injustice and suffering rightly. Notice what David says in verses 
12 to 15. Actually, verses 13 and 14. He says again that language of what the wicked say in his heart, but this time it's different. It's not just a complaint about what the wicked are saying. It's commentary on what the wicked say. So he says, verse 6, the wicked says in his heart, I will not be moved. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God will never see it. Verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? This is more of a rhetorical, right? Why does the wicked say this? Because, verse 14, you do see, for you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. In other words, the wicked is saying this in his heart, but the wicked is wrong. The wicked is not right in what they conclude. To conclude that there is no reason to fear the Lord is wrong. Because the Lord does see and the Lord does call to account. And so, in light of that, David turns and asks God to act. He's ultimately, in verses 12 to 15, asking God to bring justice, right? Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? You do see, for you know mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. Therefore, Lord, Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Break the arm isn't just asking God to like give him a broken arm. It's asking God to stop him from being able to do more wickedness. Stop his wickedness, Lord, verse 15 says, and call it fully to account. Do what he says you will not do. He says you won't call it to account, but I know that's not true because you see and you will do something about it. And so based on that, he asks, arise and judge, O Lord, for I know that you see. He asks, but he doesn't ask in a way that says, God, you're not good if you don't bring it now. See, the grumbling response of unbelief would say justice must come now. And if it doesn't, God is no good. But lament ends always in trust, whether or not circumstances have changed. Lament always leads to trust. That's the purpose, to move us from that pain to trusting in that promise. And notice how it does for David here. Verses 16 to 18, just beautiful. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. In trusting, we remember what is true and it is balm for the soul. Listen to what, listen to what David remembers. First of all, God is not as far away as he seems. Remember his question. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? But what does he say in verse 16? The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Whose land? His land. Which land belongs to God? All of it. That's the earth. The nations, and he's not just talking about nations in general, but we see if we look back at Psalm 9, that the language of nations here is talking particularly about the wicked on the earth. They will perish from his land And it's his land. He is present, reigning as king. God is not as far away as he seems, but all the earth belongs to him. And therefore, he will hold account. 
Not only that, but he sees, though God seems hidden, he's not ignoring things, right? Verse 17, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. He's not ignoring. All the way back in verse 14, you do see. He's not ignoring. Though God has seemingly hidden his face, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Sometimes God does. That is not a sign that he is ignoring those times of trouble. That's what, that's what David sees and that's what we must see. That God does indeed see the acts of the wicked. And God does indeed hear the desires of the afflicted. Though he seems hidden, he's not ignoring. And though justice is delayed, it will come. It will come. He is the king, in verse 16. How long? Forever and ever. That means that a delay doesn't mean that it's too late. A delay doesn't mean that justice can't come. Not only that, but verse 17, you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do what? To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. So that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is a description of the day of the Lord that will come. The day of the Lord when the Lord will return and bring judgment. Judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. Though justice is delayed, in other words, it will come. What we see from this psalm as we think about injustice in the world, we see, first of all, that our hope for justice, our ultimate hope for justice cannot be in one another, cannot be in human beings, cannot be in humanity as a whole. Human justice will always be incomplete. We will leave stones unturned. Only God is the one who, in verse 15, can call wickedness to account till he finds none. Right? There will always be hidden wickedness in this world. And so any attempt at human justice will always be complete. Human justice will always lack sufficient strength to guarantee that it won't happen again, too. Right? Human justice will not be able to break the arm of every wicked. Only God can break the arm of the wicked completely so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Human justice will always be temporary as well. Because any attempt at justice is going to fade with time. Because we die and new generations arise and forget the lessons we've learned. And then more injustice is perpetrated because they don't fear God. Human justice will always be temporary. Only a king who is king forever and ever can guarantee a future without injustice. That's what our world longs for, but the hope cannot be in a human king or human kingdoms. Cannot be in human beings. Rather, we must hope in a king and a kingdom where justice reigns. A king and a kingdom where justice reigns is the only source of future hope. And if we hope in that, if we encounter injustice that God seems to ignore and we lament that injustice and have our hearts moved from pain to promise, then out of assurance of that promise, we can seek to do justice and to love mercy. We can seek 
to bring justice, but we do it without carrying the weight of that justice must be complete and guaranteed forever and ever. We do it without carrying that weight that only God can carry. We not only seek to do justice, but we do lament injustice wherever we see it. We don't grow cold in our hearts because we know that there is a promise of a king and a kingdom where justice reigns. And so we look at the world as it's not supposed to be and we cry out to God for that kingdom to come. That's what we do as Christians. That's the act of faith. We place our hope in that forever king and the coming justice. This is a sure hope because Jesus Christ himself has guaranteed it. In our time of greatest trouble, God did not stand far away. What did he do? He drew near in Christ Jesus. In our time of greatest trouble, God did not hide himself. But what did he do? He revealed himself fully in his son. In our time of greatest trouble, Jesus Christ himself came and proved that the helpless who entrust themselves to God will not be put to shame, right? Because what did he do? He entrusted himself to his father and experienced injustice that is so far beyond compare to the murder of millions of babies. I can't even begin to compare him. It's so far beyond compare to any race-based violence. I can't even begin to compare Jesus death on the cross. His murder on the cross is so much more unjust And yet the greatest act of injustice that you and I could possibly imagine is proof positive that all who entrust themselves to him will not be put to shame. It is proof positive that the arm of the wicked has been broken. At the cross, wickedness was crushed under the king's feet. And the king of kings and lord of lords is one day going to return and complete that destruction. He is one day going to return and be this forever king on the throne of David who brings this forever kingdom that has no more injustice. This forever kingdom where man of the earth may strike terror no more. He's going to put an end to all of it. And we cry, amen. Come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we long for you to come and bring that kind of kingdom. We long for the day when the wicked won't wait and crouch and get ready and murder the innocent. We long for the day when there will be no more wars. We long for the day when every tear will be wiped away. Death and dying itself will be no more. We long for the day when you come and call all of the wickedness that we've seen seemingly ignored in this world. You call it all fully to account. We long for the day when, as you bring us before you, we are clothed in, not in our own good deeds, but in your righteousness. And we see you face to face. Lord, I pray that as we see acts of injustice in the world around us, and as we encounter other sorrows in our life, that you would help us to lament in faith, and that you would use our feeble prayers to move us from pain to trusting in your promises. Would you help us by doing what only you can do? We pray.
Amen.